Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. This week, we're going to be revisiting probably one of the best-known and beloved movie musicals of all time. All that and more coming up on It Happened in Hollywood. Let's play a little musical word association. I'm going to say something, and then you respond with the first thing that comes into your head. Ready? You're the one that I want. Now, probably you responded. That's because Grease is one of the most known, familiarized films of all time. It's up there with, I would say, The Wizard of Oz in terms of 100% familiarity. But it wasn't always such. Grease started as a Broadway musical that was fairly popular, but by no means a runaway blockbuster hit. And then Paramount decided they wanted to try their hand at turning it into a feature film. This was in the late 70s, and they got a very larger-than-life producer, Alan Carr, to put it together. One of the stars of that Broadway run was a young, very charismatic actor named John Travolta, who in the ensuing years had started to become a major Hollywood force. First on Welcome Back, Cotter on TV, and then in a movie called Saturday Night Fever, which was based on a New York Magazine article about the disco scene. And no one could quite foresee how huge that film would be. After that, Travolta had a lot of power, and he was pretty excited about doing Grease. Not only that, he had enough power to choose who the director would be, Instead of going with some veteran, he pointed at a guy named Randall Kleiser. Kleiser had directed him in a made-for-TV movie called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, where he played this guy with a terrible immune system that could never be in the regular atmosphere. So he always lived in a plastic bubble. Kleiser had only done one feature film until then, but because Travolta had so much power, he got him hired on the job. And Kleiser did a fantastic job. Grease quickly became a complete cultural sensation. It became the highest grossing film of that year for Paramount, 1978. And actually, until that time, the second highest grossing Paramount movie of all time behind The Godfather. Kleiser joins us this week 
to tell us about how this movie that we all know and take for granted came to be. It's a fascinating conversation, and I just felt so lucky to have him here and ask him everything I wanted to know about the making of this super classic. So without further ado, let's do it. Welcome. Randall Kleiser is such a pleasure to have you on It Happened in Hollywood. Thank you for inviting me. Um, now, when I originally reached out about this, uh, I, you know, I just wanted to do an episode dedicated to Greece because I think uh, it means so much to so many people. And, um, and then, of course, tragedy struck in the time since, and we lost Olivia Newton-John. So this episode takes on a whole new uh, level of significance, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners are you know, even more attuned um, because uh, of the, the loss that so much of us felt, and, and it, so much of it was because of Greece. So not to start on a downer, but, you know, if you could share a bit about, uh, you know, the news and how, you, how you're dealing with it and how you're feeling about the, the loss of Olivia. Well, uh, I, I knew Olivia, of course, for like f over four decades, and um, she never changed. She was always exactly the way you imagine her when you see her in the movie or, any, or on stage. I mean, she, there was nothing... I never heard her say anything mean about anybody. I mean, a lot of times when people talk like this about people, it feels like a Pollyanna kind of uh, bullshit. But in this case, it's completely true. I mean, she uh, she always signed her emails "Love and Light," and that was that was her "Love and Light." Wow. Oh yeah, a huge loss, and uh, it hit me very strongly. I know a lot of my friends, and um, let's dedicate this episode to Olivia Newton-John, uh, that beautiful, t talented, ethereal presence. Mm. Yes, I have so many memories over the over the decades of of things, all related to Greece, because you know uh, it became kind of like. Uh, high school reunions. We kept having them. Uh, people kept calling us all back to get together for the 20th reunion, the 30th reunion, the, the DVD uh, launch, the uh, AFI asked us, and American Cinematheque. And we, it's just been constant over the, over the last four decades, and Olivia was always there. And um, the last time I saw her was at Kelly LeBrock's ranch, where we had a very small little dinner with her and uh, with her and John, her husband, and um, you know we were all, we all. She was very spiritual. We all held hands before dinner, and uh, she seemed again in great spirits. Um, but a year before, we were down in Florida with John, and um, we went to three cities and showed the movie at uh, to to these groups of people. Uh, and they went crazy, of course. Uh, the way I staged it was um, we had the big movie screen, and then at the end when John and Olivia fly off in the car, I had them come walking out under the screen unannounced, and the audience all jumped to their feet and started screaming. Wow. <laughs> and then we, then we, I came out on stage and we did Q&As and, and uh, had the T-Birds there. It was, it was great. People from the audience... Uh, uh, in, in each case, each city we went to, they all um, uh, asked questions about Olivia's uh, health, and she explained that she was fighting it and doing well, and they all were, like, so emotionally supportive of her. You know, they were cheering her, and it, it was wonderful to see that. Oh, that sounds like an incredible uh, screening and moment. Um, the fun thing about the, going to these three cities, Tampa, um uh, 
Jacksonville and another one I can't remember. But um, the fun thing about going to those three cities was that we were traveling in Olivia's tour bus, and it was like a rock and roll troop. You know, I never had been in one, and we were sleeping on these uh, bunk beds, and she had the the big bedroom in the back. And uh, it was it was a real bonding experience to to be like a rock group going around from city to city and and having these screaming fans wherever we went. It was I'd never been through anything like that. <laughs> a taste of uh, rock stardom. For yes, you. yes, it was like that. And and also when we go to the Hollywood Bowl, it was like that too. And the Hollywood Bowl when uh, seventeen thousand people show up in costumes, you know that that was a rock star experience as well. Well, I would encourage you, uh, you know, as they occur to you, doesn't matter where we are in the interview, please share as many stories about her as possible. I figured. That's why I wrote a couple notes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Great. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to just go through the story of it. I'm sure you've told it many times, but um, it's new to us. So let's go uh, back to, um, I, I understand that John Travolta was instrumental in uh, in bringing you into the Greece universe. Is that true? Yes. I worked with John on Boy in the Plastic Bubble, and we got along really well. And when he signed a three-picture deal with Robert Stigwood, he recommended me as a director that he had worked with and wanted to uh, work with again. And I had done a TV movie for Robert Stigwood called All Together Now. And I knew um, Alan Carr from all his parties. So um, <laughs> I was the only guy that they all knew. <laughs> and so... Uh, uh, John pitched me, and uh, when Tribal Rights of the Saturday Night came out in New York Magazine, um, Stigwood flew me to New York to meet Nick Cohen, the writer, and that was the article that became Saturday Night Fever. So they were thinking of me for that movie, but then nothing happened for a few weeks, and then they suddenly uh, called me up and said, do you want to do Grease? So I was moved over from Saturday Night Fever to Grease. Wow, wow. Either would have been great, but as it turns out, the gods smiled kindly on you uh, with that. And uh, had you worked in musicals at all before this? I had not worked as a director in musicals, but I had been an extra in many, many, many musicals when I was in film school. I was in Camelot, Hello, Dolly, Thoroughly Modern Millie. And the best uh, training for me was being in four Elvis Presley movies. No kidding. Wow. Also as an extra or a <laughs> yes, dancer? As extra, as, yes, as an extra. And a dancer and an extra. So I was around um, Elvis for quite a bit, you know, and, and he was very friendly. He would nod and say hello. I mean, we didn't know each other, but he would recognize me. And, and I would watch how they broke down the musical numbers in all these movies I was an extra in. So I knew totally how uh, each uh, how a musical number is broken down into pieces and how you do playback and do just one section and then move to the next and so i had great training from being an extra i love that you know i mean i, I you, something you hear over and over is that you know there's no sm two small parts and every opportunity is 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 an open door and you took it yeah you, you have quietly to really pay attention pay attention, and I always would go up to the directors when I could and ask questions about what they were doing, and then say I was studying film at USC, and they would always be very uh, open and friendly and explain things to me. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm like that too. When, I, when I'm when i on the set and I'm doing work and some young kid comes along and asks questions, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to them because I remember what it was like. How nice. And you did attend USC. 
I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was at USC the same semester that George Lucas arrived, and we ended up sharing a house together. I, I rented a room from him at his house in Beverly Hills uh, that he was renting. And uh, I was an actor in his very, very first film, and he was the cameraman on my first film. In the uh, the THX Before film? that. Before oh, before. That. Yeah. <laughs> what was, was the one before that? Freiheit. And it was about a German student running across the Berlin border. And I, I was the student. And uh, I was shot by a machine gun and crawled through the grass. And they, and on the soundtrack, he had people talking about freedom and what it meant to people. And everything it was like, you know, during the war, uh, uh, the, or during the, you know, draft and all that. And um, so that movie was a, a big uh, winner at festivals. And that started George's career. And, it, and it's very similar to THX, but that, with in tone, you know, it's about running from authority and and trying to get away from bad guys. Yeah, certainly a theme that continued in some of his future work, <laughs> just in uh, farther galaxies. But um, how was he as a roommate? I have to ask. <laughs> he was very quiet. He would sit up. I was downstairs. He was upstairs, and he would be wor working at his desk, drawing little stormtroopers, and <laughs> um, you know, he didn't like to go out much. But we did have parties. We had people come over, and and uh, you know we 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 were dating different girls at the time, and uh, that's you know that was that was the lifestyle at that moment. He did he ever whisper anything about uh, like something that would turn into Star Wars to you, or no, no, he didn't. He um, I don't think he was. It was before he was into Star Wars. He was you know American Graffiti was based on his life up in Modesto, California. He was very into cars very into cars, and he had uh, he had been in a terrible car accident just before he came down to USC, and um, that changed him a lot. You know, he knew that that he had to get serious and, and that there was something that he wanted to do in life, and he had a focus, and that's what he did. He came to USC and started focus. He didn't even know that you could go to film school, that there was, there, there was a school where you could watch movies, and uh, but he when he arrived, he was thrilled, and... Uh, all of us were. We were all excited about, you know, trying to get into the movie business, and we were told that you couldn't. This, the professors all said that nobody has ever gone out of film school and gotten into the industry. You had to be related to somebody, or else you couldn't get in. <laughs> and so that was what we were all told. And um, and then uh, the the industry changed right with our generation because I think what happened was movies like Easy Rider came out and they saw that there was a market for movies made aimed at teenagers because up until then it was all aimed towards families and adults. And that's, that was the shift. Wow. So, okay. So you, so you had some, uh, in your back pocket, some ideas of how to direct a musical from being an extra and, um, suddenly the opportunity to, uh, direct Grease comes along. And now how did you know Alan Carr? This is someone whose name will come up repeatedly. I'm sure through this conversation, he was, uh, very famous for throwing, uh, hot disco parties in his, uh, house in the Hills and Mick Jagger would show up and he would always wear a caftan. I know that about him. And then he went on to some infamy later on, which we can talk later about involving the Oscars. But right now he's about to ride a rocket ship to, to success. And uh, who was he to you at the time? 
Well, uh, I had gone to see Alan before Greece uh, because I wanted to make The Blue Lagoon. And I took him the book and I said, I want to make this movie. Can you help me? He said, well, uh, it looks great. I think it'd be terrific, but I'm more interested in going forward with Greece. And so then we got connected on that. And um, he was very hands-on in the pre-production, um, the design of the um, clothes and the... Uh, the the whole feel of the movie, but then he kind of got sick when we shot it. He had uh, uh, some problems, kidney problems, and so he wasn't around when we were filming most of the time. I mean, he showed up a few times, but pretty much he was he was not there. And then, in, and so he was there in pre-production and in post. And in post, he was pretty good. He didn't uh, really uh, interfere at all. You know, he and the studio didn't either because they they kind of were focusing on other movies that were. Uh, they thought were going to be the big hits that year. Um, Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty and um, the movie with Jack Nicholson, I forget the name of it, uh, a Western. And so we were kind of left alone, which was very good. Pat Birch was the choreographer of the original play, which was a big hit, still running when we made our film. And um, she was my right hand, and along with Bill Butler, the cameraman of Jaws, and the conversation. Um, so I, I was surrounded by really good people, and, and uh, they helped uh, to guide me on things that I didn't know about, like you know, the details of staging musicals and, and how to shoot in Panavision and those type of things. So Bill Butler was your director of photography? Yep. Wow. And he had just come off of Jaws. That's right. The biggest movie of all time. <laughs> at the time yeah and uh and but my my interest more was more in the conversation because i thought that was a fantastic picture sure another classic but um but yeah just to have i mean the best cinematographer in the business that must have been nice to have yeah him. yeah and he was really uh, great about guiding me and, and and suggesting shots and you know saying what if we did it this way and i'd say sure you know and i mean like uh i remember one shot um uh, where the boys are walking down the hallway and they run into Principal McGee. And he it was his suggestion to start on the hallway and then drop down and find them walking towards you. So that, that was one, one, one example of his, his ideas. And, but then we would work together, like we screened West Side Story together and looked at uh, the scene, um, the musical number Tonight, where it was cutting between the sharks and the jets. And we used that technique in Summer Nights, where we're cutting from the boys to the girls on movements. Wow. And I had studied uh, at USC cutting on movement. You know, we had a lot of, shot, a lot of uh, classes on that, where you, you have a movement across the cut, something. So we had things where they go jump up, and then the boys jump down and, or go across. And so all that stuff was helpful, and we all worked together on it. Yeah, um, so many... Uh amazingly dynamic shots you know I, I just watched it again and uh it, there's a certain balance i think to to the you know making the camera dynamic but making the the dancers and performers dynamic and but not being too busy and i feel greece really hits the sweet spot and uh certainly in the in the gymnasium dance scene you know i i just thought it never the action never stopped it felt like a real exciting dance and a live broadcast um and it's just a thrillingly staged sequence 
and um, and it reminded me of West Side Story, uh, the the Spielberg remake, of course, uh, where he had similar impressive stuff. But um, and then it even reminded me of uh, that Christmas uh, movie with uh, Jimmy uh, Stewart when they they fall in the pool and oh, yeah. that dance. Yeah, it, it, it's up there with the greatest uh, high school dance sequences of all time. And then another thing I was going to point out is you had uh, you had an enormously a sensitive sense for rhythm and just the 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 like a visual rhythm. And one example in the in the tell me more scene, you know, before it goes to like it gets quiet and kind of sad part that she that that she sings, uh, you have Kaniki kind of flicking a a rubber band, and I just thought that's such a brilliant little detail and. Um, and he the did movie that is himself. Just, <laughs> he, did? he did. Oh yeah, I didn't tell him to do that. The, 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 the actors all came up with little bits all through it. I mean, especially uh, Barry Pearl playing Duty. He would always come up with little bits, uh, and uh, and also, well, you know, I think Kanicki when he when he hit the. Are you talking about when he hit the guy in the face with the uh, comb? Is that what maybe you mean? it was that, or there was some little yeah, like that accent that he did that really yeah, like just, right was perfect. That's right. Yeah, that was the comb and the face of the other guy. Because boink, we put a sound effect on it. Yeah, <laughs> just, just yeah. The, the whole, you know, we started off with a uh, cartoon and the titles, and we ended with them flying away, just to remind the audience that this was like, you know, a fantasy. It was not supposed to be real. So you have this property that's on Broadway now. The version on Broadway became very different from the film, and you added many classic songs. And I'm just wondering how you decided to change it or what was required. Well, when we went to see it, we saw it in Chicago, and it was clear to me that Summer Nights was going to work, Grease Lightning was going to work, and you're the one that I want. Uh, I mean, uh, um, we go together. All worked great. But the, some of the other songs uh, just didn't seem to be... Um, up to par and so and we needed a solo for for john and a solo for olivia and a song that they sang together that was really good so we assigned that to um uh john farrar and uh lewis st louis the the two of them lewis st louis did sandy for john he did that overnight that song and uh you're the one that i want was something that john farrar did um, and I had not heard it until the day we shot it. You know, they they showed up on the set with the playback, and we had not planned anything. We had not storyboarded anything, and they played it for us, Pat and I. And and then we started improvising that whole that whole scene, uh, that whole number, on that day, and and so just looked around to find where we could shoot it, and we saw the the Shake Shack and went in there and said, well, we could have them come in here. It was really crazy because. Uh, most musical numbers that work uh, require lots of prep, and this was one that had no, no prep. Unbelievable. I mean, that just that Shake Shack shot alone is so uh, iconic. It's crazy, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then John Solo, um, you know, like I said, uh, Louis St. Louis wrote that overnight, uh, and we shot it at the drive-in, and that was one night.
then uh, Olivia's solo, uh, hopelessly devoted to you, was something that we was not even on the schedule. We just had we knew we were going to shoot a solo with Olivia, but we didn't know what it was going to be or where it would be fit in the story. So near the end of the shoot, we we had to figure a place for it, and, and John Farrar brought the brought the song and played it, and then we said, well, now where will this work? And then we looked at the script, and we said, oh, maybe after the, the slumber party, she could go in the backyard. So then they quickly built a backyard set, and then we showed up, and we shot it all in one day, in one shot, pretty much. Were they singing live, or how were you actually doing it? No, it was all done to playback, and uh, the way that I had experienced all the movies I did as an extra. So, you know, you, you take a phrase or a couple bars of music and figure out what you're going to shoot, and then say, playback, and they run it, and you shoot it, and cut, and then you move on to the next one. So Olivia had already recorded, uh, hopelessly yes. devoted? Which became her signature song. I mean, yes. I, I love that he brings that to you overnight, like just whip that out. Yes. Well, the other thing is that um, that one time I was in Vegas uh, watching at Olivia's show, and she said, Randall Kleiser's in the audience. Stand up, Randall. And I stood up, and she said, I'm going to sing Hopelessly Devoted to You. <laughs> so she did. <laughs> and it was such an amazing moment. The whole audience was behind her. And, oh, gosh, that was a great memory. Incredible. So in terms of the casting, I mean, it, it didn't all just fall into place naturally. I mean, I, I understand that there was some friction or different difference of opinion on who should play what. Can you walk us through that? Well, I think we tried to use a lot of the people who had done the Broadway show, and uh, and that was great because they all knew where the laughs were. They had been on the stage for weeks and weeks and months and months. And they knew the audience, what the audience wanted. So that they were very helpful to me. And I think most of the people that we hired from the show, there was no no friction at all. I'm trying to remember where there might have been something. Um, I know that uh, Alan was representing Stockard and wanted her to be in it. And uh, I didn't have a problem with that at all. I I, I didn't know much about her, but, but uh, she turned out to be fantastic. I don't recall any friction, really. Oh, well, there's there's one thing the the um, <laughs> the role of the coach. Alan wanted to have uh, the porn star Harry Reams play that part, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he hired him. He he actually hired him, and then the studio said, "No, no, 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 you can't do that," and so they had to fire him. And uh, and then we got Sid Caesar, which was perfect. But you know. Uh, Alan felt so bad that he gave Harry $5,000 out of his own pocket to, but the poor guy was very devastated because it was his moment to move from porn to the real, real upscale world. Poor Harry Reams. <laughs> was he the one in Deep Throat? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've never heard that. That is a great story. Thank you. Um, 
And then in terms of the ones that were on Broadway, I know John Travolta played Danny Zuko, didn't he, on Broadway? Oh, well, I think he played Duty. Uh, I don't know oh. if he ever played Danny on Broadway. I know he played Duty on Broadway. He could. I don't recall him playing Danny, but uh, Kaneki, I mean, Jeff Conaway played, had played uh, Danny Zuko quite a bit. And, and then the boys that... Barry Pearl, who played Duty, was on Broadway, and Michael Tucci was on Broadway, and um, uh, ja Jamie Donnelly played on Broadway. So we had quite a few people that had done it. I didn't realize that so many of the um, the Pink Ladies and the and the T Birds were came directly from Broadway. Yeah, it was a great idea because they 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 knew the parts really well. They did, and they knew how to. Um, the timing, the comic timing is so exactly. expert. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I say, Barry kept coming up with things like uh, when the, when the uh, bad guys, the scorpions go by in their car, he, uh, I think he pulls out a water pistol. And that was a little moment he came up with that, that gets a laugh, you know, <laughs> they're always being inventive. John and Jeff Conaway came up to me with that moment where they hug and then they, quickly comb their hair and move away from each other because it's the 50s and you don't hug in the 50s guys don't hug and that they brought that up and said hey what do you think of this and i said great let's shoot it and that's that was those types of things were going on all the time hey, hey danny uh we've been friends a long time right yeah well you, you remember the the, the drive-in the other night we went and, and the movie and it was like the duel and the guy's best friend went with him and 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 like it was just like his lieutenant like his second you know yeah, so? Well, I, I thought that you could maybe be my second at Thunder Road. What do you mean? You want, you want me to drive with you or, or what? No. Oh, hey, hey. <laughs> 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 uh, well, listen, I'll pick you up at three, huh? Yeah, too late. Yeah. And uh, I do remember Barry, when we were shooting the carnival scene, he got into the, the uh, little painted cartoon things with where you stick your head mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he was messing around with that and i looked over and saw that and said, hey let's put that in the movie so that, it was all kind of like loose brilliant performances and amazing chemistry across the board it's just magic it's pure movie magic comes around once every hundred years i think <laughs> um stockard was um she was 33 at the time uh was was that a, a concern at all to you um, I figured since we were doing this all in kind of a bigger-than-life way that we could get away with that. The one thing I thought is we couldn't have any crow's feet on the eyes because that would really be too much for for a uh, high school kid. So I did check every actor for crow's feet, and that was the only thing that I w was worried about. If they had had a crow's foot, what would you do? <laughs> not, not hire them. There was a couple people that didn't get hired because of their crow's feet. No kidding, no kidding. But thank God Stalker did not have crow's feet because <laughs> could there ever be another uh, Betty Rizzo? No. I, I can't picture one. Well, here we are again. Yeah, but this time we're seniors. And we're going to rule the school. Janda <laughs> <laughs> is so adolescent. <laughs> we are adolescent. We don't have to flaunt it. Okay, girls. Let's go get them. She's really kind of the heart of the the film. Mm -hmm. It's the best part because you know there's a there's an arc and there's emotion and all that. The, the others are kind of surfacey, but she is the heart. You're right. And you know, not always the nicest person, yet you 
desperately want to be uh get her approval <laughs> yeah <laughs> who yeah. doesn't want to be a pink lady you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah um what was she like to work with was it was you know she, she's now such a legend but at that time she was just coming out right coming right yes yeah, she was um she was easy to work with uh the the ones the one thing that uh I was very concerned about was the talk about dropping you know the worst things I could do that that number she does. Mm -hmm. I thought I thought it was really important that we had it and uh, when she did it, I was so aware of her training as an actress because it was so clear that she had taken the song and broken it down line by line with actions, and that's something that I learned at USC from my mentor Nina Fosh, who studied with Stella Adler and and Lee Strasberg which is that you take in a song or, or, or a scene, you take each line and, and find an action behind it. And she, it was clear she had done that. And you could really see it when you watch it, that there are transitions going on in every moment. And uh, I just was so impressed by that. I could flirt with all the guys Smile at them Another amazing performance, Dee Dee Kahn as Frenchie. So another iconic, uh, she's so lovable and sweet and just, uh, I don't know, there's something about her. Listen, Sandy, men are rats. Listen to me. They're, they're fleas on rats. Worse than that, there are amoebas on fleas on rats. I mean, they are too low for even the dogs to bite. The only man a girl can depend on is her daddy. You know what you need? What? A night out with the girls. Huh? We're having a sleepover at my house tonight. Wanna come? How did you find her? Well, she came in and she was just bubbly and perfect. And we all said, I don't think we even thought about anyone else. We, we did have all the girls read for all the parts. But when, when she did Frenchie, it was clear that, that she was the best best one and and we never thought of anyone else so you know it was, some of the casting just fell into place really any good stories about um you know shooting her big song beauty school dropout and or maybe it's really frankie avalon's song but yeah such a great scene <laughs> well we shot that on a, a soundstage and it was way way up the uh the steps that you see he walks down to a booth but the booth was like 10 feet off the floor and then this the, where he starts was like maybe 30 feet off the floor. And it's a, sal a, sound, a soundstage, uh, concrete floor. And um, he was worried, you know, that he, he could trip and fall. Uh, they all were, because the girls were in high heels and they were walking these narrow steps. And so he put uh, um, 
pads on the sides in case anyone fell off it. But Frankie was really worried about that. Uh, Dee Dee absolutely loved doing the scene, and she, you can see in her face that she really was kind of like enamored by Frankie. You know, she, she absolutely loved that, doing that. And uh, the T-Birds who were flying in at the end were up on wires, and um, they had to be up there for quite a while because they come in at the end of the song. Of course, today that would all be done with visual effects, but they were hanging up there on, this, <laughs> on, on the thing. And the uh, wires, the harnesses were digging into their crotches. Oh, God. <laughs> and they had made the mistake of getting stoned before they went up there. So they were, <laughs> they were hanging up there through the whole song, just in agony until the end when they flew in. <laughs> <laughs> and they never had children again. No. Um. <laughs> yeah. Beauty school dropout. No graduation day for you. Beauty school dropout. Missed your midterms and flunked shampoo. Well, at least you could have taken time to wash and clean your clothes up. After spending all that dough, the doctor fixed your nose up. Yeah, such a such a great scene, and I, you know, that one really kind of is a throwback to the the kind of Busby Berkeley kind of numbers that you used to see in uh, musicals. And um, I'm just wondering, did this film, where did it land in terms of Hollywood's? on again, off again, love affair with the musical. And did it reignite one? Well, it came at the end, uh, a time when, when musicals had been flops, many, many, many flops. And, and uh, it, it, that's, uh, I think, one reason why the studio didn't pay much attention to it, because they didn't have much faith that it was going to do any, any business. But um, I, I mean, once it came out, uh, I don't know how many other musicals came out after that. I, I really had moved on and was doing other things. But um, I do know that it was not a popular genre when we shot it. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure it had to have you know, spawned a bunch of imitators. I mean, I can think right off the bat of uh, all these like roller boogie movies. And I mean, there was, there was a lot around the era of uh, lesser musicals, but uh, Greece was always, you know. Well, Xanadu came out and Greece too. Of course. And, and you know, uh, those are the ones I remember, but uh, th those were right afterwards, um, but they didn't do so well. Yeah, maybe Xanadu was what uh, killed the little renaissance. <laughs> but also, you know, now considered a classic and beloved uh, as oh, passionately yeah. by a lot of people. Uh, absolutely. Um, and um, of course, Olivia having a great deal to do with that and and the soundtrack. But um, it's a strange film, but um, definitely has its, its appeal. So just moving along in the uh, in the production of it. So you you're working, you know, a, a lot of the, the locations are popular tourist uh, locales now in L.A., um, several of the, the high school exteriors and things. And uh, were you looking for as authentic um, backdrop as possible to work on and where were you doing the 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 stuff in the in the uh, sound stages well we we did the, the interesting story about the uh the locations is that which i didn't even realize until just recently is that we were planning to shoot the entire movie at venice high school and the the football coach didn't want us there and so he started sabotaging this 
our, our production, uh, turning on sprinklers when we were trying to shoot, things like that. So the production manager, Neil Maclis, decided, screw this, we're going to move our company to a, a other high school. So I, I always wondered why we moved to other ones, because it was perfect at Venice, but... Um, that's why we moved, and so I, I had nothing to do with it. I just they said, okay, we're we're, we're not shooting anymore here, and I, oh. I mean, for me, it was, I was in a whirlwind because I had never done a feature before, and and I was at a big studio, Paramount, and uh, all these people working, so and Alan and and you know Stigwood and all these executives were around, and so I I was not really running the show in terms of, okay, I want to do it here, I want to do that. No, I was sort of like pushed around a little bit and just trying to get the movie made. The main facade uh, where they're returning to school at the beginning of the film, that, is that Venice? Yes, that's Venice. And that was the first day of shooting, too. Oh, wow. Uh, it was perfect. And, and we, we could have gone on and done the whole thing there. but Except for this coach. Yep. What a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> We will find out who this man is. That would be interesting. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. Stymied Greece. <laughs> but, um, but then you went on and worked in, uh, there's a uh, John Marshall High, I think, is in Las Feliz, right? That's right. So that became uh, for uh, which scenes? For the, par for the, just for the carnival at the end. That's the only thing we did there. Interesting. The foot, the, using the football field. And then the other place that we shot was uh, uh, Cunningham Park High School, I believe. And that's where we shot the gym. And it happened to be right next to a, um, a, a slaughterhouse. And it was August, and uh, the smell of the uh, slaughtered pigs was in our 100-degree gym because uh, we had no air conditioning because we couldn't run it with the, with the cameras. So we were, when they're all dancing around looking like they're having fun, they're about to throw up and faint. <laughs> this isn't in the hand jive scene? Born to yeah, hand jive? uh-huh. Handjob, yeah. And that is ending. unbelievable because that scene is just pure, you know, effusiveness and and uh, fun, and they're inhaling uh, dead. Skin. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And wow. also at the at the carnival at the end, it was also about a hundred degrees, and they were all wearing those leather outfits. But if you look at it, you can see that they are totally giving it a hundred percent. You know, the, all the way through, even the extras way in the background. The way we got the extras to dance was we had um, 20 dancers that we hired that Pat Birch knew from, and we, all, we, we got them from auditions, but many of the people she had worked with. And they, she told them the choreography, and then the, those 20 dancers each had like 20 extras, and then they would rehearse. The, the 20 dancers became choreographers with the extras. So, so by the time we were ready to shoot that scene, Everybody was in sync, and um, the extras had given them, you know, the feeling that they were really not just low-life extras. They were dancers, so they all knew steps and what to do, and that's why it all came out like the way it did. Now, this is uh, where they're singing, We Go Together. Yeah, mm -hmm. where they're all running down the football field. We go together. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and we'll never, we'll never stop, I think, entrancing a new generation. Yeah, I think you're right.
So one other, uh, or actually a pair of performances that I wanted to just highlight uh, because they really tickled me in in rewatching it is uh, Eve Arden as Principal McGee and uh, Dodie Goodman as as uh, her her um, sort of dippy uh, uh, assistant, the secretary Blanche. Well, they were like, they were completely a delight to work with because they're such pros, and th- none of that was in the script. Uh, we just came up with it on the set. You know, we we came up with those. They improvised, and I said, well, let's try this, let's try So that was all totally made up on the day, and uh, they're, they're just great. They're, the two of them were fantastic to bounce off each other. So everything with the uh, the xylophone, that was all made up on the spot? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, oh. <laughs> and I think all that was there was Eve's announcement to the students, and then the rest of it, the stuff between them, we just came up with on the day. So I know Eve Arden was a was a pretty big star in her day. Yeah. And I don't know as much about uh, Dodie Goodman, but she is so hilarious. Yeah, she was on the... I'd seen Dodie on the Gary Moore show when I was growing up and, and Eve Arden on Our Miss Brooks. So these were icons for me as a kid, and it was so thrilling to work with them. And of course, same thing with Sid Caesar from your show of shows. Uh, I'd, I'd seen him as a kid. And uh, who else? There was somebody else that was on the cast that was like from the 50s TV. Oh, Ed Burns. I had seen on 77 Sunset Strip as a kid, and I thought he was so cool with his kooky kooky, lend me your comb. You know, he used to always comb his hair. And so uh, Wait, I... Who uh, was, what character was that? That was from 77 Sunset Strip, a show I watched every week on TV as a kid. And he, play, he played uh, the... A uh, guy who parked the cars, but he always was combing his hair, and he had a song that came out called "Kooky Kooky, Lend Me Your Comb," <laughs> and, and uh, it, it was a gigantic hit. And he went around uh, the nation with screaming girls everywhere, uh, um, all around the world. Actually, he was a big, big star in the in the fifties, and uh, so we were. It was thrilled to work with him too. And he, of course, played Vince Fontaine, the the very vain uh, TV uh, dance host. And and Diane and um, Diana Manoff was fantastic with Ed Burns because the two of them came up with a, a lot of the uh, shtick between the, them. You know, he's trying to seduce the young girl, and and then uh, she he says, well, "What what's your name?" She's uh, Marty, Marty Mar- yeah. Maraschino, like in Cherry. I'm Vince Fontaine. Hey, do your folks know I come into your room every night? Over KZAZ, that is. <laughs> I'm judging the dance contest. I don't think I'm entered. A knockout like you? What's your name? Marty. Marty what? Maraschino. You know, like in Cherry. Right at that moment, she put her hand on the uh, on the long lens of the TV camera, and that was something that that she came up with. That was just a great little moment that people, adults, laugh at a lot. Kids goes right over their head, like many things in Greece. 
<laughs> because it's kind of like phallic. The lens. Yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I I forgot how how quite racy the film is. I mean, it's really going for it in terms of sex and condoms and pregnancy and um, all sorts of things that I didn't quite get as a kid. When I went to the American Film Institute and showed it to film students, I asked them if they had seen the movie as a kid, and they all raised their hands. I said, "Have you seen? Did you see anything today in the screening that you didn't see then?" And all the hands went up again. <laughs> <laughs> they realized how much nasty stuff was all th through there. <laughs> um, but also very natural and sexy. It didn't didn't feel superfluous. It, it it seemed like that's probably how horny kids from the fifties acted. That's true. Yeah. So I, it sounds to me like you had a pretty uh, smooth sh experience on this. For some reason, I thought Alan Carr would have been always nudging you, but no, he he was off. He would have been had he not been uh, <laughs> in the hospital, but because uh, he was he was very hands on in the beginning, and and but then Pat and and uh, Bill Butler and I were kind of left alone during the shoot, which worked out great. And as you're editing it, um, what's occurring to you? Are you getting really excited, or what's the feeling in the editing room? I was very excited, uh, but not sure how it would be received. And when we had our first preview, they decided to fly us all to Hawaii for the preview because they didn't want it to be in L.A. in, in case it was a flop. Uh, so, you know, Barry Diller and, and uh, Michael Eisner were very, very concerned that uh, nobody find out if it was a flop because they wanted it to do well. So we flew to uh, to Hawaii and, and we had a, 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 a filled a, fill the theater up. And um, Barry Diller was sitting in the front row looking at the audience during the whole shoot uh, screening. And um, when John Travolta started walking down the steps of the stands in the football field for summer nights, the audience began laughing, and I, my heart skipped. I thought, oh, my God, they don't like it. It's not going to work. Um, and then um, they started laughing and, and coming, and you could feel the good vibes happening. And then I realized, oh, they were laughing because they liked it, not because they were making fun of it. But for one moment, I thought it was a flop. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, Barry Diller and um, Michael Eisner, who went on to... Um, head up uh, Disney, but at this yeah. point they were running Paramount uh, Pictures. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these were the big honchos, and they wanted to see where their money went. That's right. And um, and so after that first little uh, nervous moment, it sounds like the movie uh, it hit all the the sweet spots with the, the Hawaiian test audience. Yes, it did. It was it was really a thrill because we just didn't know because uh, nobody had seen it up until then, uh, and. Uh, we knew that it was going to work, so that was great. And when How it came, exciting. It was exciting. And then when it came out, uh, they had a big premiere at Grandma's Chinese Theater, which was like super Hollywood, and Alan Carr had staged all that. And it was, it was They had a big special afterwards. Uh, the after party was a TV special, and uh, he really glitzed it up. And And then when the movie came out and was playing... Um, I would be driving along in my car and I'd turn on the radio and there would be one of our songs and I'd switch the station and another song and all summer long, the stations all had our songs playing. 
I mean, it, isn't it one of the biggest selling or the biggest selling uh, soundtrack of all time? It's one of them, yeah, it's for sure. Saturday Night Fever and Grease are two giant hits in terms of music. And, uh, but, the, but the amazing thing was driving along and switching, switching this, the radio stations and hearing it constantly, all our songs. You know, I'm looking at uh, the box office grosses. So the first weekend, eight million. Then the first 19 days, 40 million. 66 days, 100 million to become Paramount's second highest-grossing film behind The Godfather. And its initial run ended with three 133 million dollars, the highest-grossing film in 1978. Um, sounds like you had a hit on your hands. Well, I didn't really understand any of that because at that point there was no uh, entertainment tonight. There was no grosses being being uh, advertised. You know, nobody uh, at the end of a weekend, nobody had heard what was number one at the box office. None of that was happening. So I asked, "Is is this good, or or are you just being polite?" I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. They're always really nice to you in Hollywood when you have a bomb. <laughs> no. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know the extent of the success because i had nothing to compare it to i didn't they didn't tell me that it was the number one box office they they just said here are the numbers and i thought oh, is that good well it was more than good and certainly and we were entering uh, freshly um off of the success of jaws a new era in in film uh That's where right. and star wars too and Star Wars, yeah, it's all the same uh, couple years uh, where these these uh, these movies became what we know as the modern uh, blockbuster. And Greece uh, Greece can stand shoulder to shoulder with Star Wars and Jaws in terms of uh, its, its influence uh, and certainly uh, the uh, the money it made for Paramount. Uh, what does that What did that do for you? What, uh, you're well, the, the, the hot guy in town. It allowed me to make the Blue Lagoon, which is what I really wanted to do to start with, and. Uh, you know that was great because I got to produce and direct that, and um, it was uh, uh, something I had found. You know, I found the project, I found the book, and uh, hired Douglas Day Stewart to to write it. Uh, he had worked with me on Boy the Plastic Bubble, and got to sh go to VG and shoot it exactly the way I wanted, with no interference at all. You know, it was it was like we just went off with a an australian crew and went to a little island with no roads or electricity and took nestor almendros the wonderful cinematographer uh of um, many of truffaut's films and just had a like a camping experience and a like a student film type of experience it was wonderful now the blue lagoon is uh, also figures uh, uh, looms large in my uh, childhood memories and it, it was this very sexy movie of uh, mm. of youthful uh, uh, sexual discovery you had Brooke Shields who was um I guess an up and coming she'd already done posed in her Calvins I think at that point no, but she was, was a young model that was afterwards that oh was it was but before that she was in Louis Mal's movie Pretty Baby where she played a 12 year old prostitute Oh my goodness! Okay, so you, she had quite the uh, the launch, yes. um, uh, Miss Shields, and then and then Christopher Atkins, this beautiful blonde, uh, he looks like the Little Prince or something, but um, <laughs> uh, and you put them on this island together, and they're kind of marooned, and they uh, they do what comes naturally, right? I do. That's right. <laughs> well, it was it was all written in the book by Henry Devere Stackpole, who wrote it in eighteen ninety something, and oh wow. Um, yeah, so the book was, uh, I just loved the book. It felt like Robinson Crusoe, the way it was written. But there was not much sexuality in the book. It was sort of 
tamped down. But Doug Stewart uh, took took the ideas that were set up and explored them for the screenplay. And then Nestor shot these wonderful, wonderful love scenes between them. And, uh, you know, they're so beautiful. Um, of course, today, you couldn't make The Blue Lagoon the way it was made then, because afterwards, the Screen Actors Guild, I believe, um, made a, a decree that you could not have underage actors uh, simulating uh, love scenes. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> that was the only yeah. one that we got through. <laughs> yeah. I somehow feel like the Blue Lagoon would never be made again, uh, and certainly in this. Uh, no, this oh no, age. not today. No, I mean we we had little children running along the beach naked, and uh, I'd be shot today if I did that. <laughs> did did the reception to the film cool the heat you had off of Greece? Um, I wouldn't say so. No, it was uh, there was right wing groups that called it uh, kitty porn, and. Um, uh, Frank Price, the head of Columbia Pictures, put out a, uh, a full-page ad in the New York Times saying that it was a story of natural love and, you know, trying to, you know, bolster up the fact that it was innocent. And it pretty, was, it pretty much was innocent. There was no salacious sex in it. It was all beautiful. And, and, and the fact is that if you're on an island and there's no one around, of course you would swim naked. You wouldn't put on clothes. So that's what I liked about the purity of the original book it was it was so natural that that you know you just figured that's the way things would be if you were on an island like that just to go back to uh, Greece a bit you know i feel like we kind of uh, did not give john travolta quite uh, any attention and i'm sure um, you have plenty of stories about john so he was um welcome back cotter was a major hit show and he was the breakout star at the time of that show, correct? That's, that's right, yeah. And then we did Boy in the Plastic Bubble, and that uh, was his first leading role. And uh, he was um, uh, very obsessed with uh, the details of which take was being used, you know, because he, he really wanted that movie to work. And so he also had insomnia. And so he would call me late, late at night and say, which take did you print on what we shot today. <laughs> and uh, I would, you know, say, John, let's talk about this tomorrow. You know, come on, it's, it's three <laughs> it's in the 4 morning. <laughs> yeah. And just to explain for our listeners, that Boy in the Bubble, uh, which I remember as well, um, could you explain the concept of, of what that was about? It was about a boy who had no immune system. And so he was unable to be out in the real world. So they, they put him in plastic uh, containers and little rooms that had fans going. So, But he couldn't touch anybody. He couldn't touch his mother, hug his mother. He couldn't have... And he falls in love with the girl next door. And uh, so the only way that he can um, uh, touch her or hug her or, or kiss her is to come out of this environment and possibly put himself his life in jeopardy and at the end of the movie he does he comes out of the bubble and he goes on a horseback ride with her and that's the end of the movie oh and then of <laughs> course we would all be boys in bubbles um when the pandemic hit um, well i actually thought when aids came along i thought well why why don't they put people in these bubbles until they can find a a, a solution um you know if, if it could have maybe saved a lot of lives but I didn't see anyone ever do that. Well, I guess, you know, condoms were a version of a bubble. I guess, yeah. A mini bubble. 
Um, <laughs> but let's not go down that road. Um, uh, so, okay. So, so he was obviously very involved in, uh, in, I guess the filmmaking process or was yes. he more concerned about his performance or what, why was he so interested? Uh, mostly his performance. He wanted to make sure that he was coming across in the best possible way, which all actors want, but he had some power, you know, I mean, when I worked with him on Boy in the Plastic Bubble, he was an actor for hire, although he was well-known. But by the time he, he did Saturday Night Fever, he had an entourage and he, he had a good side and a bad side and, you know, people telling him what, what, where his hair, what his hair should look like. So he had a, a group of people around him giving him advice. And that wasn't bad, but uh, it, it was different, you know. What was his entourage like? I mean, I'm trying to picture. He had a, um, uh, assistants and he had a manager and... Um, they were all looking out for him, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it didn't interfere, but it was just that they were there and giving him advice. Hmm. So he, the, the success of Saturday Night Fever was full swing when Grease started filming? Not really. It, it had. I think it hadn't even come out yet. I think I remember, yeah, because at the end of our shoot, we had a screening of it on our, the last day of our shoot. Uh, it was finally finished, and we, uh, at a rap party for Greece, we ran Saturday Night Fever for the first time. And uh, we all so went, you were the Whoa. first people in the world to see it. <laughs> I think so. And, uh, and we all went, oh, my God, John, what, look at what you've done. This is going to be fantastic. And they got an Oscar nomination for that. Holy cow. I, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Imagine the cast of Greece watching Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> for the first time, yeah. It's funny because um, I, I we did an episode on uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, and uh, Madonna broke literally during the shoot. So the first week, they could shoot on the street. There was no problem. Oh. By the end of it, paparazzi everywhere, oh, you know, yeah. like security. Uh -huh. So I think you lucked out a bit that he didn't quite become yeah, a superstar. Well, Cotter was still running, so I think, you know, there were people trying to get on the set and take pictures, yeah. Uh, but not to the extent that they would now. You're right. And how was his uh, chemistry? Uh, obviously, on screen, it was incredible with Olivia. But uh, were they uh, close at all during the making, or did they go to their own corners? No, they were completely close. I mean, John acted like an, an older brother for Olivia because she was didn't know the ropes. She'd only done one movie that was a flop in England. And um, he wanted her to come across really well, as did I. So the two of us sort of like got together and try to just make her feel as comfortable as possible and look as good as possible and make sure that she felt like she was being photographed as, as well as possible. Bill Butler developed a special white light that went around the lens to, to make her feel, look, look actually um, as, as well as she could, you know, wiping out any tiny little wrinkles or anything <laughs> and making it just look great. And her final look, her transformation into the bad girl, it's the iconic look. Um, did that take a while to get to? Were there consultations on the hair, on the outfit, or how did it come together? They all did it behind the scenes. Um, uh, our costume designer, Albert Walski, did the uh, outfit, and uh, the hair was done by our hair people. And when we were shooting the drive-in scene, that was when I first saw Olivia in that outfit. I had not seen any sketches, no, no, no consulting, no talk about it. She just walked out of the of the uh, of the makeup trailer and started walking towards me, and she was backlit. And I 
looked at this girl coming toward me. I said, who the hell is that? You know, she came up closer and closer. And then when she got right up to me, I said, Olivia, <laughs> I, I didn't recognize her at all because uh, it was dark and, and she was backlit. But then finally, when I got really close, I could tell it was her and I knew it was going to work. Had she found her tell it to me stud gate yet? Oh, the gate. Um, I guess she just naturally felt it when she got in that outfit and that hair thing. You know, she, she you know, sometimes actors when they get in in the right uh, clothing and and shoes and makeup and hair, it, it just brings out the character. And sorry, um, so it's, it's tell me about it, uh, just to show that I do know my Greece um, right. history. Um, so that was a, an improvised line. Well, I have my book here, Greece, the director's notebook, and in it, I have the script, the moment of that, I know that it was written a different way, and she came up with changing it, or the two of us did, I guess, I don't remember, but let me see what the original line was. Um, um, I love this, we're going directly into the stacks for the original Greece <laughs> screenplay. Yes. How exciting. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, this is, it said, how are you hanging, stud? Sandy, how are you hanging, stud? And then Danny says, Sandy, what have you done to yourself? And Sandy says, you noticed, huh? Well, what's it to you? And we took all that out and just put in, tell me about it, stud. <laughs> on, on, on the set. <laughs> I, once again, I think you, you made the right decision. Yeah. Sandy? Tell me about it, stud. I teased this a bit at the beginning, but um, Alan Carr, you know, he went on to produce the infamous Oscar. So first I want to ask, do you remember what the after party was? Because he would throw the most famous legendary parties that people are still talking about in Hollywood. And I only wish I could have attended them. Um, do you remember anything fun from the from the after party of the premiere? Well, I do. Yeah, the, 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 there were two after parties, one in uh, Hollywood, which was a, a TV special. And that was like over the top. They had uh, uh, limos going into Paramount. And they had had built a whole, uh, they had rebuilt the, the inside of the gym in air-conditioned comfort. <laughs> so that, <laughs> no slaughterhouse. So that, that's right. I mean, they finally had it, you know, it would have been much easier to shoot everything the way that the special was. The special had a lot more uh, backing than our movie did. But, <laughs> but that was that was like a, a, a circus. And they had people singing Barry Gibb and, and uh, Andy Gibb and uh, Yvonne Elliman. It was like a TV special. And then when we went to New York, we had the after party at um, Studio 54. Oh, fabulous! And, and Alan had brought in '50s cars into Studio 54. They had to be they had to be uh, towed in because you're not allowed to have any gas in the car if it's inside. So we had all these '50s cars, and we had Elton John and and Grace Jones and Andy Warhol. All these people showed up for a typical Studio 54 night, and that was kind of expect uh, special. My uh, I got to invite my family, my mom and dad, and my brothers. And we were all hanging out at Studio 54. Also, Olivia had a party, an after party, a, a rap party at her house. And she covered the pool with uh, a dance floor. And uh, again, I had my folks out here and they were dancing on the 
on the top of Olivia's pool and look to the right and there's Tina Turner and look to the left and Rod Stewart. Uh, it was it was like a whole whirlwind of excitement, the, the, the launch of Greece. Randall, I'm deeply, deeply envious. <laughs> if I could be anywhere in any, if I had a time machine, it would be there at that moment. So uh, at least you got to experience it and you de definitely deserved it for creating one of the greatest films of all time. Greece. Thank you so much. It's just uh, such a thrill to, to be able to talk to you about this. It's almost surreal because you just assume uh, these things that were chiseled uh, on uh, Mount Sinai. But no, <laughs> you worked, you worked and toiled, and um, we thank you for for your your contribution to cinematic history. Well, thank you for the great interview. So we've been having fun pulling up old THR reviews of the movies that we're covering this season. So I did Grease, and uh, it was very deservedly a rave. It, it's opened, if you think Saturday Night Fever has everything, wait until you see Grease. The reviewer, Arthur Knight, uh, singled out John Travolta, saying he dominates the film, in effect repeating his Fever performance, but demonstrating again that he is a particularly charismatic screen personality, and he compares him to Brando, James Dean, and Elvis Presley. He obviously also has high marks for Newton John, who he writes can tear the house apart with a number like You're the One That I Want, and still project a youthful innocence and vulnerability totally in keeping with the character she's been asked to portray. She's a kind of 70s Debbie Reynolds. And just as I had noted to Randall Kleiser himself, the reviewer has very high marks for the way Kleiser just intuitively edited and staged the musical sequences, which were so uh, kinetic and rhythmic themselves. The critic writes, Clearly, Kleiser is a talent to be watched and nurtured. The visual rhythms he builds to accompany the song seem to rise out of the music, then take over on their own. So I'd like to thank Randall Kleiser for coming by. This was, uh, what can I say, uh, a dream come true to be able to ask him these questions. Uh, hopefully, you'll now watch Greece with new eyes the next time you see it, and inevitably, you will see it again. And if you so feel like it, you can watch it today on Paramount+. Plus. While you're at it, hunt down next week's film, Bull Durham, one of the greatest romantic comedies, sports comedies, and just comedies, period, ever made in the American studio system. You can stream that on Amazon Prime or Freebie. We have the writer-director of that, Ron Shelton, right here to tell us about how that one came together. I'm really having a great time this season, and I hope you are too. And until next time, I'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.